0: I have embraced in the past several years, like post-pandemic and post-uprising, like I enjoy coming to work and I embrace the hell out of dealing with people. And I have friends of mine, coworkers, who every day they are re-triggered because the calls keep coming and they are just worried about something bad happening. And the more they operate with fear, the more fear corrupts and corrodes them.
1: How can we gain a deeper understanding of the culture of firefighting and emergency response? And what does a veteran Minneapolis firefighter and EMT have to tell us about the nature of the human condition in the 21st century? Let's talk all about it with firefighter and author Jeremy Norton, right here on episode 447 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your healthcare career, and the system in the big picture. And I'm always here to share education ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I'm always grateful to you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, you can do me a solid and leave a rating and review on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone who you think might enjoy it or learn something from it. And if you want to become a patron, even $2 a month can help a lot over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Whatever you'd like to do to support the show, including listening like you're doing right now, that is awesome. The show notes are always at NurseKeith.com in the pull-down menu for the podcast. And you can also find them on any app where you happen to be listening. Like I said, we're here with Jeremy Norton. He has written an amazing book called Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. And Jeremy, it is such an honor and privilege to have you here. And I literally, like I just told you before we hopped on the call, that I really could barely put the book down. And I'm really curious, having just come out, this book is just released October 10th, 2023, what was your like the the main impetus for writing this book and wanting to tell your story?
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. um it's you you do wonderful work, and it's i'm I'm just honored to be included with the range of folks that uh, whose stories you share and amplify. Um, I, I started writing on some level in 1998, 1999, when I was trying to get hired, because I was trying to make sense at that point of kind of the labyrinthine, uh, uh, almost incoherent process between civil service, fire department administration, fire department union, like three different entities who were battling over entrance exams. And so I wanted this job because i have been inspired by a friend, to try out and it it made no sense and and i really was confounded by what all of us who were trying out had no real idea what we were actually getting into and the in my first year or so looking at all the stuff we were doing that had nothing to do with the job description nothing to do with what the you know the captains at our training facility had kind of Yelled at us about like that fundamental kind of disconnect or incongruity um, was 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 um, interesting to me and and I wrote about the human aspect of it. I mean, I think I came to it from a, a definitely a literary and a nerd. Like I'm I'm just quizzical and curious, and I ask why a mm-hmm. lot. And I'm definitely oppositional, defiant. And so when I was told that's just the way we do things, I'm always the one who's like, why? but why? And also I was a teacher. And so I kind of looked at a bunch of largely men who shouted, who set our protocols on our te- you know, and, and I'd be like, excuse me, the, the grammar is horrible in this sentence. It's very confusing. My classmates are getting it wrong. <laughs> you know? So of course I was, oh you know, I was I kind of picked on or yelled at, yelled at a lot, but I'm used to that. Um, uh, but I really started looking at, wait, they say we're firefighters. We're gonna be out fighting fires. That's the job. You will die in a fire if you don't do it X or Y way or listen to this old, old folk, old person, excuse me, uh, veteran firefighters, the proper term.
2: Hmm.
0: And and yet we, I was spending most of my time worrying about fires, of course, because it's scary and deadly and smoky. And but in between we were going to Dozens of emergency medical calls every shift. And so I was spending most of my time responding to people's 911 calls in Minneapolis that had nothing to do with fire. And even when we went through the EMT training, there was definitely a divide between a large, um, a large portion of the kind of training staff kind of said, well, that's what we have to do, but firefighting is our bread and butter, it's our essence. And then others said, realistically, hey, you're going to see so much more and have so many more options to help people through emergency medical calls. So that's kind of where I started. That's kind of where I put the needle to start. And I started making notes. And I mean, honestly, this book, on some part, there are sentences in there that are 23 years old. Hmm. There are a couple sentences in there that have stuck it out through dozens of iterations. Um, But I... I started writing and, and trying to explain to, I, you know, I joke that my in-laws never understand where I am or why I'm not at holidays or what, when I'm on shift. And so I kind of started explaining to to them, this is what we do when we're not at fires. And it, it was almost a, um, a panorama of the types of calls we get from pre-birth to after death, stabbing, shootings, car wrecks, poisonings. Um, self-harming issues, um, and then of you know respiratory issues, all the chronic maladies,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and it was such a fascinating opportunity to look at human life. And, and I, I go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Oh,
1: and and the book is, is such a uh, insight into the human condition, and that's what I said at the top of the show. It's like insights into the nature of the human condition in the 21st century, and you kind of see everything. I mean, you have this inside view of society and you see the people often who have no primary care provider. They have little access to what many of us privileged people obviously take for granted. And you're actually in there as a I mean, is it? Would you call it a safety net because they've fallen through the the regular societal safety net? Is that is that what
2: you are? <laughs>
0: that's, that's I was actually looking at that the the terminology. I was thinking about that terminology earlier today. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, and I think for for listeners who are unfamiliar, yeah, I would say that emergency response, the nine one one system in in cities, you know, so I, like Santa Fe has a full time fire department EMTs. So someone calls 911. There there are the acute issues. So I just fell down, broke my leg. I ran into the edge of the kitchen table, I'm now bleeding profusely. Somebody ran into our car. Like those are acute emergencies. Heart attacks, you know, um, asthma. And then you've got kind of chronic issues which would be someone who is sick, kind of chronically ill. So COPD, emphysema, congestive heart failure, all those things that are long-term slow debilitations. And, and they just, if they fall behind on their meds or if they get a cold or their system, like if they're systemic issues, they need help and they need to go get transport to the emergency room. So they're not necessarily life or death, but untreated, they will, it will become dire. And then the third category is what you just referred to, or for all the people for whom a 911 call is both their primary care and their last resort. And that's the part that we, you know, that we see a lot of people who have no other options, who don't have housing, don't have regular doctors, don't have money for any of that. And, you know, and, and, and what really struck me is some of my Mentors, some of my co-workers have been phenomenal about recognizing the humanity in those people. A lot of us, a great many of us, put that divide up, us versus them. Right. And so for me, like I, I there are other people who look at this and appreciate it, but I, I think I really am such kind of a a, a weirdo nerd. That I look at the human connections. I've always looked at things this way. I've always been curious about, you know, what is actually going on. And in our job, like the paramedics are higher trained, but they also have the kind of the obligation because of the for-profit hospitals that they pretty much have to, and li- legal liability, excuse me, they have to transport almost everyone. We have neither handcuffs nor stretchers. So we just have our, our, basically our ability to engage people. And the best of us, and this isn't just Minneapolis, it's across the country, firefighters are really good at being a calm, kind of unflappable presence, right? We walk in. And then the other thing is if we do that well, we kind of cut through all the extraneous information. Whatever dispatch because it's such a uh, uh, like a multi-level and and kind of phone tag dispatch system. So often the information we get is through an algorithm, and then I walk in. It's like this is definitely not a heart attack. This is someone on the couch crying because oh he's been drinking for three days because his partner just left him. This is heartbreak. This is a blues song. This isn't a heart attack, mm-hmm. right? And then we and then we're there, so we may as well be kind and patient and calm. And that's it. Like we show up, and so a great many of our calls are not life or death, but being present and being able to witness is a gift we give to people. And then the other part of it is on a lot of the really dire calls, we find ourselves immersed in other people's suffering. And that's the part you know, I write about later in the book. That's the challenge. You know, you asked about the safety net. I mean, for most most of america the 911 system is what catches everything that has fallen through whatever safety net there is or isn't and so the police officers paramedics and firefighters emts whatever we are depending on your city we are that the people who are kind of catching what falls through right and and yet we're not trained as social workers we're not tra- like we develop it if we're if we're inclined, but a lot of us aren't because we don't think that way, or we you know, we think we're supposed to be fighting fires, and all these nine one one calls are a nuisance. And you know, I really believe that that disconnect is what sets a lot of my coworkers up to have to struggle later on because these calls do not end. I, I can be mad that. The homeless person who's sleeping on the street gets called again by a passerby, and we drive out because it might be someone unconscious, but it's just Ed, the guy who sleeps at that corner. We have to come. I can get mad at Ed, or I can look at the system that has Ed out there, and we don't have any better options, right? And so, I say, I'm not going to blame the protesters, I'm not going to blame the people who are struggling Before, if I'm not going to blame the system that put them out there or doesn't that doesn't look for way better ways to solve these situations,
1: right? And in this respect, your book is—it's like a sociological um, dissection of of our society, of the 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 microcosms of the society within emergency response and firefighting, and also the ills of those two societies. So I think it's really fascinating and troubling one to, to see our culture through your eyes, because it's a really difficult lens through which to see and witness our culture. And obviously you're living through that in your, your colleagues are living through that every day. I mean, you're like living it right on those street corners and, and then when we pull the camera back and we're, you know, we're looking at the big picture, it's, it is highly disturbing. And then at the same time, you're also calling out the, what you said to me, the insidious role of sexism, homophobia, racism, toxic masculinity, as you describe it, and term that we use a lot these days within the, the culture So you're rubbing up against and pushing back against this, like, incredible, um, um, it's just this frictional um, Sisyphean type of struggle. And I'm curious, like, is your your culture, the society of firefighters, EMTs, emergency response, what I get from the book is that it's not a terribly self-reflective group in general. Is that true?
0: Well what did uh T.S. Eliot say in Burt Norton? Uh go 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 said the bird, mankind cannot bear very much reality. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think I mean what's interesting is there like, there aren't there isn't a single type of firefighter, right? And yet it is kind of a self-selecting group. And they you know, we're kind of like law enforcement adjacent. We're more like the bad Boy Scouts, you know. And some of us are more kind of lean towards law and order, and some of us are much more anarchic. Like we like there's something like we are hermetic and we're off in our own little world. And a lot of us are, you know, adrenaline junkies, but there was, there has been this really pronounced, you know, wall, like we do these things and other people's tragedies are our opportunities to do our thing. And and when you're a predominantly straight white male workforce going into the homes of of people without means, generally, you know, generally poor people, and which in Minneapolis and much of America, that means disproportionately people of color. Those disconnects, if unexamined, reinforce all the all the specious not, uh, narratives, right? That th- they don't they don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't care. They're you know the, like, and and because I've Because because I'm a nerd, because I've studied, because I was a teacher beforehand, I started really looking at not just what makes the they, but what makes the us. Like the comfort and privilege we have that allows us to to look at other people judgmentally. And I think that's – and a lot of my coworkers are good at dealing with people. But, you know, generally uh, when we have, you know, we have men and women of color on the job and we have people, you know, who are Native, who are Asian, who are Latino. You know who are black, their perspectives, like fundamentally challenge that that kind of that black and white disconnect, right? You know, and and one of the things that has come up, um, you know, I generally try, I was going for the phrase compulsory machismo more than toxic masculinity. I mean, it's semantics, but just because I think toxic mask has you know has has got such a buzzword status, and it's mm-hmm. more. But I think it's that compulsory that people are trying to fit in. And I think it's a manifestation of a kind of a toxic, problematic masculinity. But it's this people are trying to fit in. And you're just told to toughen up. But one of the things I think is really f- interesting and important to remember is that in most fire departments across America, women were not allowed to apply until the 80s at the earliest.
1: Which is really shocking but shouldn't be
0: sure right exactly and and even you know and even then most departments have maybe 10 percent nine percent women at best and then where depending on the department non-white men's applications were either just chucked or never taken seriously so who has been your default work group for generations, it's white men and military mm-hmm. men because, A, it was thought that because they'd seen combat, they would handle what we see at work well, and B, because that's who was hiring and that's who was picking, you know, having. And so, that, like, that's what I look at in terms of what we think of as natural or normal and kind of the sociology of our culture and also the sociology of this profession that when, you, when it was only white men doing the job, there was a range of white men all sorts of white men doing the job. But it was so limited because no one else was allowed to do it. And so now we look back and say, well, for 100 years, it worked great with just us, but now diversity is ruining things. And it's like, well, we ruin things by not allowing others on. Right? And so that's one of those things that you look at that and say, okay, this was never a natural work order. It's not like white Irish guys are inherently better at firemanship than you know a black woman would be you mm-hmm. know and and i think also going back to the the masculinity machismo piece what we've seen now and what we've seen for years but we didn't have the language for it is all the maladaptive ways that people deal with the stress and what they see you know so when i came on the last of the vietnam era um veterans were were, were kind of retiring. Were, were and so there were a lot of people who came out of Vietnam, as we well know, carrying tremendous damage. Right. And and they came to a work where it was a lot of other guys hanging around dealing with stuff, but a lot of it had not dealt with, or there was no good way to deal with what they'd experienced at war. And so the workplace was kind of this kind of crazy outlaw world. And so there was so much maladaptive coping and it was really fun if you were on the good side of it and it was horrible if you were on the getting bullied i can only and, imagine right right and and so then as they started retiring we didn't have anything in place we didn't really have a legacy to replace it with right and so like that show, Mad Men, romanticized good suits and drinking and smoking yourself to death. And of course, sexism and racism and homophobia. But we ignored all that stuff, even though that was in the critique. People are, you know, my generation wanting to have that iconic fireman existence, which never really was. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this backwards looking aspiration, but our culture has changed, but society has changed. Right. But we know that it's not healthy. And and realizing that this this privileging, this stoicism, mistakes the fact that that stoicism isn't necessarily like bottled up stoicism, isn't necessarily productive for the people who are doing it. And we don't really. So we're now the the, the fire service is trying to find ways to be to to have us deal with things healthily. But the fact is, the bad calls come constantly people are going to continue to get mangled and die badly and someone which is us has to keep showing up right and and so struggling with how do we do justice to ourselves when we didn't have anything like we didn't have a productive legacy you know we're finding out like the drinking and smoking and being a jerk and and being disassociated those are bad for us <laughs> it's AMR. like duh. But wait, right, but we it's but that's true. kind of it's but it's yeah, but it's built into kind of the cultural fiber. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you know, and I try to explain, you know, in the book and when I talk to people that like I am like I have embraced in the past several years, like post pandemic and post uprising, like I enjoy coming to work and I embrace the hell out of dealing with people. And I have friends of mine, coworkers who every day they are re-triggered because the calls keep coming and they are just worried about something bad happening. And the more they operate with fear, the more fear corrupts and corrodes them. right? And so I'm watching really maladaptive behaviors playing out. And I'm like, but unless you retire, you're going to keep going to bad calls because that is what our job is. It is we go every day every shift to see people having the worst or last moments of their lives or seeing people suffering. So if you're trying to put up a, like you're just like flop sweat gripping, you know, white nailed gripping of the steering wheel trying, hoping you don't have to see something, you're going to lose that battle. And I'm kind of like, I'm embracing the hell out of it. But I'm also very, very clear that everyone dies. That everyone suffers, that I'm like, so I'm kind of profoundly cynical, but it's uh it's almost like I'm not a Buddhist, but it's a little bit of like this is life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like life is suffering, and if you let go of suffering, but then the other part of it is, and I want to be there to try to make people feel better, that I will look you in your eyes and hold your hand as you're suffering, as you're scared, as you're dying, as you're dead, right? Like I accept it all. So for me, it is all entirely the the life process you know, I look at that as our gift. Like I really feel honored to be able to do that. And for me, it feels that that's what keeps me way better able to embrace it all. And then I look at my friends who are struggling and it's like that struggle and that doubt and that wall just eats at them. And I feel really badly for them, but I can't, I've written a whole book about it, but I don't know that that's going to convince anyone to change their behaviors.
1: Exactly. Right. And I bet a lot of the nurses listening who work in trauma, who work in the ED, who are you know might be self-professed adrenaline junkies or not, Some of them do the personal work in order to, you know cleanse themselves of the trauma and the cortisol cortisol and kind of get to the other side. and some, probably engage in certain maladaptive behaviors that are definitely not serving them. And you're right. I mean, it's a privilege to do that kind of work that I've never done myself and I admire it. And you, you, in your book, you're honoring the people you work with and the culture within your, within you, where you function. And you're also calling out the things that need to change and that are slowly changing and early in the book you say something about i can't remember the i'm paraphrasing it's something like it's a it's it's hundreds of years of tradition steeped in the inability to change, or something like that.
0: It's-, it's it's a line from Chicago Fire Department that they used in the oh, movie yeah. Backdraft, which to itself is just atrocious. But yeah. it's a hundred years of tradition, uh, unimpeded by progress.
1: That's right. That's yeah. And and <laughs> exactly. and and I
0: think there is that that notion of, and and I think this is just who I am and how I am. That I was kind of raised to to question and to look for the right thing, and so I don't. You know, like, I, I I use a couple times in there the example of, like, the emperor's new clothes. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, you do. I'm happy to be told this is what works. I'm happy to be said, this is how we've done things. This is, but if I'm like, but this is, this isn't productive, or this, we're just clinging to something because we do it without, I mean, think about it. up until about 2008 there wasn't much internet knowledge and so in my first 8 years i was you know there were a couple of people publishing like literal pamphlets about mm-hmm. fire service stuff and and you really had to get lucky if you went to a conference to hear someone talking about progressive fire stuff everything else was kind of we've done it this way do it this way mm-hmm. don't overthink it since about 2008 science has like the scientific advancements have, have have exploded, expanded, and so we can now understand what we didn't understand before. But for a lot of the senior members in the in the early two thousands, because we privilege seniority and experience over actual knowledge, or or we conflate the two, they were really thrown off because you, like suddenly their position of influence was being challenged by the same, you know, propeller head nerds who they mocked, you know, because for a long time it was no scientist can tell me what it's like to be inside a burning building. Mm -hmm. And then the scientist was like, "Uh, excuse me, I actually replicated that 55 times using multiple thermal rays and this, that, and the other. And I was like, this is a great opportunity to fuse both the kind of the John Henry aspect of the job—it is men and women fighting hard against gravity and physics and heat and all the rest.
1: Mm-hmm. And you and, you the, spray and the red stuff on the red stuff, right? Wet That's stuff what on you, the
0: red stuff, as yeah. they say, yeah. Exactly. And and then the science of it of saying we can actually understand more what we didn't understand in the past, and our stu- like the intransigence, the stubborn refusal to to blend those two is really based from what I've seen on kind of a defect like an ego and, and an insecurity which drives so much and that's when i get into kind of machismo and the masculinity
1: mm-hmm. which and, is yeah, but, so important to talk about
0: isn't yeah, it yeah i think so and and cuz i'm like i'm i'm happy to be wrong i don't like being wrong i get mad at myself but i'm 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 always happy to be corrected and learn more and so i say if you're telling me that i'm not getting it and i say okay explain it to me and all i end up hearing is kind of an unthinking just because the oppositional part of me the punkish part of me the the self righteous part of me says fuck that you're full of shit and i'm i'm not going to follow someone like that just because it's comfortable for you like i'm very very comfortable in the gray areas i'm very comfortable in the ambiguity i believe we it's a lot of both and right but mm-hmm. that's problematic for people who need Really some like reductive or clear um, uh, statements out of
2: you know, yeah
1: commands. I, I respect that very much and when we come back from the break, I'd love for you to read a short passage from the book. I'd love people to hear authors writing in their own in their own voice. I feel like that's so important and there's some other questions I have for you about the career of mm-hmm. firefighting and emergency response and some very important, Um, societal moments that you've lived through over the last couple years. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back for the second half of episode 447 of the Nurse Keith Show with firefighter and author Jeremy Norton. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with Friend of the Pod and my new friend and colleague, Jeremy Norton. And Jeremy, it's so great to have you here. And I've never had a real insight into the life of firefighters and people who work in EMS. I've known ER nurses and I've known trauma nurses. I've known flight nurses, you know, who go out and rescue people and do all sorts of, you know, crazy transport and, you know, mountaintop rescues and that sort of thing. But having, having a, a view of firefighters and people in EMS, and even what you tell about dispatchers and the props you give to dispatchers and what they go through getting these calls and having to figure out exactly what's happening and then translate it to you, this game of telephone like you described it. I mean, it's an amazing insight. And I think those of us who work in healthcare, if we're on the receiving end of these patients who end up in our emergency rooms and our med surge units, et cetera, for us to understand what you're doing out there on the street, I think is super important. Um, and like I said, right before the break, I'd love to have you read a passage just for us to hear a little bit of the writing in your own voice. So would you do us the, the honor of reading something for us?
0: Absolutely. I'd love to. And then I want to come back to that, that thing you just said afterwards. Just, ma- I was just going to make a note. So I want to yes. uh, revisit that.
2: Okay. Absolutely.
0: Um, all right. I'm going to read. Uh, a little bit, a couple paragraphs from chapter two, Your Friends and Neighbors. I often forget that most people have no idea what firefighter EMTs actually do. It is so ingrained and normalized for me that I gloss over the details of our job, or else I plop some horrific story on the dinner table when someone says, how was work? Filling the hours between our sporadic fire calls, the smoke alarms, the beeping CO detectors, the car wrecks, and all the ordinary mayhem of life and gravity, we get a wide range of emergency medical calls. I wrote before that for nearly anything that is not an explicit police response, and often we go on those, dispatch sends the fire department, either alone to investigate and handle or with the paramedics. We are called when people are having the worst, sometimes the last day of their lives. For some, we are called after their final day. We enter their homes and are witness to the raw intimacy of people's fear and pain and loss. For the first two categories, all of us have bad days. Gravity and biology are always at work. I understand if most of you reading this have called 911 after your parent fell down the steps and cracked an ankle, or your kid did not stick the landing from the roof, or your partner fainted, or unfortunately, the horrible day a loved one had a heart attack. These are true medical emergencies. Most people call 911 only for these situations. However. A plurality of the calls we get in most parts of Minneapolis carry not simply the additional, but often the fundamental weight of sociological issues. We respond and engage with people who seldom catch a break, whose existence would break most of us. We see so much hardship, desperate loneliness, bad living, neglect, despair, alcohol and drug abuse, domestic troubles and violence, mental illness, hoarders, factors of race, class, gender, sexuality, mental wellness, disability, and many, many more shape and inflect our calls and our interactions. There are layers, there are connections, there are echoes. Throughout this book, I use the word sociology to to encompass this range. I argue it is pervasive but all too frequently ignored. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you for that. And you you wanted to um, Circle back to something I said, right when we came back. Do you want to
0: tie that in here as well? yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, so my older daughter, my beloved older daughter, Flannery, I have two kids, both of whom are wonderful. But my older daughter just started as a nurse in Richmond, mm-hmm. and she's doing um, kind of step down care and um, And so it's been interesting as she's gone through the process and we talk a lot. Um, and following a bunch of nurses online, I think a lot about the burnout that they've been facing, right, and the challenges, and much the same way I think we are given poor preparation in the emergency response system for what we will see. I think, you know, I think people in the ER in in, in medicine are also set up. So you think about how much the people who are struggling with things struggle mostly with the moral injury, the inability to help and save people. But the other part of it is because we don't really know. Most of us have no idea how brutal life is for so many people, right? So the kind of the you know the the, the illness, the disfigurements, the the suffering that we see in the homes, and then we have to figure some way to lift and carry and load these people who are in poor, poor condition. To the to the, the, either the emergency department or to uh, critical care or wherever they end up, the staff who deal with them are are that's their those are their patients, and you, you know how much that warps your sense of what's normal and how much that can hurt. And part of it's because most of us don't have any idea that this is out there. You know, I kind of say a lot in the book, and because I've worked in the same area, I mean, I've worked South Minneapolis all but probably three of my. 23, almost 24 years, we, we drive down the streets and we've been in many of the homes, generally not for good occasions. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, you know, this chapter was your friends and neighbors. Like, we don't think about what's going on in the homes around us. And I think that, like, if there could be an educational piece for people going to these jobs to say, you have no idea what you will see as a matter of course right and that i think for me at this point i expect basically everyone to be dying and suffering and very few things to be resolved and i also look at that as life like so i'm not i don't feel that uh, that uh, in, in kind of like the disconnected incongruity between what i think people should be and what we're actually experiencing i think that like i w- i wish that that people in the medical system providers could have a better preparation rather than kind of coming in and suddenly seeing all these unresolvable issues. and then you add to that all the structural and systemic issues that that really mar their world because they aren't able to make change because the system is monstrous and cruel and churning, right? And that that's the thing I really think about. Um, you know, and in terms of writing, there are a lot of really thoughtful writers. You know, uh, Doctor Guadavise wrote "Being Mortal." Doctor Sunita Paris, amazing, um, "That Good Night." Mm-hmm. Michelle Harper's "The Beauty and the Breaking." Like there are a yeah. lot of ER docs. Uh, Frank Huyler, H U I L E R, Hyler. He's down by you.
1: Yeah, he's been on my show. He wrote "White Hot Light." Yeah, and Michelle Harper was also on the show. Good. When she discussed "The Beauty and Breaking," yeah.
0: She's awesome. Um, it is.
1: And, and go ahead. Oh, no, please, you go ahead.
0: Oh, no, no. I actually was thinking really Hewler's stuff, the the white hot lights to the blood of strangers. There's like a 20-year gap. And mm-hmm. reading it, I really had the sense of the change from being a young man to a wary man in his writing. And, and because I'm, like, I'm middle-aged now, and I've been working on this for as long as, He's been actually longer, I think, than he's been a doctor, but like, and I think how much my understanding has matured and and deepened and and all that between the two. And so I think had I written and successfully published a book about when his first book came out, it would have been more kind of focusing on the adrenaline, on the the kind of wow, the human curiosity. And then to go back and write something new, I think I would have had a much more of a wariness. Same, I really felt that in his right, and his writing is beautiful, and his mind is exquisite. But it is very few places have I seen some of those same wrestling matches. Uh, and Thomas Fisher's great book, The Emergency, came out in twenty twenty one, which is about he's a, a a black ER doc in Chicago, and he writes about being uh, a, a black man who is doing practicing medicine in the same neighborhood where he grew up and looking at all the factors of race and class. um, Great writing, great, great, great author. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't seeing much about the pre-hospital side of things because the one real difference is we see people where they're at. And so when you're in the hospital and you say, can you go home and make sure you take this five times a day with food? Some people don't have food and some people aren't you know, like like we see them when they aren't able to be compliant with their meds or they and and we see what's happening before they end you know on that on that kind of merry-go-round or that unmerry-go-round back to the ER. And and understanding that it's all connected and the human narrative is so deep and so rich, but fundamentally so tragic in where we where we are. And that really informed what I was trying to write.
1: Yes, fund, fundamentally tragic. And you write about the weight of grief and there's there's so much to say about that and we would be doing your book a disservice and if we don't delve just a tiny bit even though we could spend several hours on this that your crew is let's just say intimately involved in trying to save the life of George Floyd after he was you know brutalized by the Minneapolis police and you you spend a great deal of the book on George Floyd and the culture around how that came to be, how that incident came to pass and also the aftermath and what you faced in that moment and in moments like that. So I'm just curious you know how has that experience shaped this latter portion of your career? And also just who you are as a person. I mean, you were there in like the, this moment in history that literally had reverberations around the planet and you were trying to revive this man yourself personally. So Mm -hmm. can you just talk a little bit about, I mean, I don't even know where, what else to ask you other than like, how has that impacted you?
0: Yeah, well, I think you know, uh, I I tried really hard in the book to put it in a context that uh, two two immediate pieces. One, when we responded, no one knew it was going to be the thing that opened up the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that's you know, and of course, all the internet cowboys. <laughs> Have the clarity of hindsight and um, pick apart what the paramedics did, and pick apart what we did. And the fact is, none of us had any information. And not only do we not know like the context that this was going to become like capital G capital F George Floyd murdered by police, we didn't even know where what the patient what the call was, where the patient was. like it was a stunning uh, breakdown in communication for several reasons but
2: Hmm.
0: before that I spend several chapters trying to genuinely build a a thorough contextualization of kind of if of the of what the perils of responders being blind essentially. Yes. That and I and I really go into depth because i think it is not it has not been discussed well it is not widely and i'm talking about on the on the like on the fire police medic side it has not been discussed Mm -hmm. um you know for years we would say oh that person had excited delirium but that was generally only after the person was dead it was kind of a a phrase that was tacked onto the the post-mort um but i've seen lots of people who were Agitated, who were delirious, who were very high, who were um, having psychic breaks. There's generally a cause behind someone who is acting out in the streets. The problem is if we don't see it and think, if I say, you, sir, sit down, and you're spinning on the ground and you won't sit down, too many of us take that as a refusal or a challenge. Now, firefighters are not police or paramedics, right? We don't have handcuffs, we don't have sedatives, we don't have guns, tasers, and batons. So for the police, where they've been trained to come in and control any situation, someone incapable of responding is has been misjudged or misunderstood as someone refusing to respond or to comply. And that has launched hundreds of fatal cases. Mm-hmm. because the and i mean in minneapolis alone they've been met you know where someone is families call because their family member generally a young male and a young man of color is having a psychotic uh, a psychological break a psychological psychotic break and they're he is a threat to himself and they call for help the police show up to help and they see someone holding something they order him to put it down the person is incoherent his refusal is seen as a threat and in their in their paradigm they are then they they fire and so people have been killed and at no point has anywhere in the structure meaning the police you know the police brass the city brass the state legislature has anyone said is this really what we're supposed to be doing and the default has always been afraid for our lives it's a dangerous job all that stuff and i've been on a lot of calls that were chaotic all of us have mm-hmm. there are too many dead people who are killed unnecessarily unarmed black men men of color who were killed who were not actually threatening and and the more I researched the more I saw that this is a is a uh, a problematic approach of blindness by the responders and if you see one thing and presume it's this thing and then you act accordingly. You're going to end up killing people who were never a threat. So, th- like, it is a moral outrage that, like, that safety officers kill people who need help. Like the 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 really horrific call that they did, the jury just came in uh, Monday, I think, for the Elijah McClain murder mm-hmm. in Aurora. Someone saw basically it was a racist call. Someone saw a black man. She didn't know what he was doing. And this tiny little fellow with the headphones on and a hoodie up, the cops yell at him. He doesn't respond. They grab him. He panics. So then they find a flight. You can't say that race doesn't play a part of the blind reaction by the responders. They, they are choking him. So he's hypoxic. So he's panicking. And a lot of times as your hands are flailing around, that is taken as he's reaching for my gun. Shoot him in the head. That has happened here. This time, they had him choked out, and when the paramedics arrived, they came in and saw the police needed help. They shot him with a dose of ketamine to sedate him, which is not wrong, except they went blindly with the dose, and they over-sedated him. And so between the, the respiratory and cardiac crisis that the police had caused, and then the overuse of stimulants, Mr. McLean had a respiratory failure, and he died. So rather than looking at a holistic thing, the two sides are pointing fingers. The put the medics killed him because they overshot him. And we don't have the framework. Like America will not look at why do we keep fucking killing people who aren't a threat? Why did the police tackle a man? Why, like like they killed a man because some neighbor, nosy neighbor said, I don't like this man walking down the street. He was 127 pounds soaking wet this was not an this was an existential crisis and you can get into the history of policing and controlling black identities and black bodies most right. of us don't want to do that but i'm i'm saying it's either that or there's some absolutely in, improbable explanation like do we really need to kill all those people because the police were that threatened and when they say you weren't there i'm like i have been there right. so for the so i spent months researching this and it was incredibly difficult it was incredibly upsetting it was like it was and and mostly the like the structural part the police officers are not trained they're not encouraged they're not challenged and they're not accountable and every time there's another killing it has been up until the until the children was convicted it was well that's just the way it goes these officers were afraid from their lives we can't do anything like the legal system it was it was uh impossibility. It was implausible that the police had actually done something wrong because of the way the laws were written.
1: Right. Completely um, intractable. And, yeah. you, and there was yeah. no way of opening that conversation. There, there was no
0: language. Like the, yeah. the, 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 the legal system had no language because no officers. Because then if you say, well, wait a second, then you look back at all these young, like all these men, predominantly men of color who'd been choked out, shot, tased, stat, uh, beaten to death. For what? And then you're like, oh shit, we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I'm not like and I'm I've been on the like I said I've been on chaotic scenes but most of the time w- like we are exacerbating the scene like and yes we need sedatives but you don't just sh- you know shoot someone in the neck and then let them lay there in the back of the squad car so they go unresponsive and die like we understand that if you sedate someone you have a medical obligation to monitor and protect their airway and get them to the hospital for for further treatment like those two things are not mutually exclusive. So that that was what I the the groundwork I tried to put in place going into the chapter about the killing of George Floyd. And because so many people talk about it, it's been seen worldwide, but really those disturbing, you know, couple minute clips of the officers on him and that that has become sufficient for conversations and And I really, because I had to prepare for another testimony, I I watched all the body cam stuff again, and it's horrific. Mm -hmm. But what's horrific is all the missed opportunities, because the very first 911 call by the young man who's the clerk at the store said, it was a bogus bill, he thinks, the man is severely intoxicated, right? They started off with someone, and then you watch the body cam from the very first moments, Mr. Floyd says that you know he's slurring his words, so he seems high or drunk, which is fine. He says he's claustrophobic. He never once fights them. He never once tries to flee. But everything goes down that they have to control this person. And then when Chauvin showed up, the two rookie cops kind of felt the pressure of his presence. And as a firefighter, I knew that watching when I was very new, one of the old, really shouty battalion chiefs came out of fire and started shouting. I watched two 58-year-old men, very senior, panic because this guy was shouting and they were so trained to react to that shout that they both like nearly gutted themselves jumping over a, a small fence with, you know, with all their fire gear on. It was like, that is the worst response. Like it's a panic response and it makes the chief feel better because he shouts and the problems go away. But it's not leadership and it's not, you know, and I watch Mm -hmm. these guys hurt themselves climbing a fence. Derek Chauvin shows up and starts shouting, and the rookies have to show him that they are doing the job, that they're not getting punked by some street guy, like all those things that are very much in a culture of machismo, that are a rookie not being empowered to say, wait a second, like that my argument, I've seen nothing that contradicts it. And the alternative is that they were all for crazed homicidal maniacs, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so that, you know, so that's, that's how I approached it in the book. I really wanted to try to, on both sides, because I know there are a lot of folks who, you know, it, it it is like, as I say, like Chauvin's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck is kind of synagogical for police brutality of black Americans. But Having seen, having worked on a man whose throat was cracked, whose larynx was cracked by police, there's a difference between chauvin kneeling and pinning him down versus chauvin cracking Mr. Floyd's larynx. And you know, and it's a sh- really shitty distinction to make, but it's a real one. Two full-bodied men on somebody's chest when he's prone is going to lead to positional asphyxia. It's going to lead to suffocation. Mm-hmm. And the 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 refusal to acknowledge what was going on. The refusal to acknowledge that the man needed help. The refusal to see his struggling to breathe as anything as that, rather than he's resisting. The, even the police protocol that once someone goes unresponsive, they're supposed to put him on his side. Someone goes unresponsive after that much of a struggle, he or she may already be in respiratory or cardiac arrest. But they follow the protocol, so they're not. You can't hold them accountable for having not recognized someone in crisis. Like it's it's systemic and it's individual, and it was. You know, fortunately, it was recorded because so many other calls like that just go as "Oopsie, man died, shit happens."
1: That's so true. I don't
0: mean to, and I apologize. I don't mean to be crass about it, but like I, it's 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 what's what what the calls I've been on. That's basically what's happened.
1: And Jeremy, it's not crass. It's your 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 book is is a is a bald, um, courageous attempt to distill the entire experience. You, you go into the minutia of what happened each minute from the moment that the 911 call was made until you all arrived and everything went down of you arriving on the scene and the confusion and chaos and, and incredible challenge of, of even figuring out what was going on in that moment. And this all ties in, I think, beautifully and tragically with your assessment of the firefighting culture in general that you're trying to not dismantle, but but take a you're trying to look at it. You're trying to really look deeply at this culture. And I think this the book and how you do that with George Floyd and how you do it with firefighting and EMS, I think could be used, it's a similar lens through which we can look at the emergency room, the healthcare system, the, the every, every every aspect of our society, like what Michelle Harper does in The Beauty and Breaking when she's looking at being a black doctor in Philadelphia and dealing with, you know, racism and and looking at how her patients live through that and Frank Heiler's assessment of his patients in Albuquerque. So your book does an amazing, beautiful, gut-wrenching job of all of this and you know you mentioned that the twin malignancies of denial and despair and you know we look at our culture in 2023 and there's there's a lot going on out there that is still not being verbalized and your I think your book is a real a really serious contribution to the the body of literature to try to distill this down so i just want to thank you for writing it and thank you for having the courage to to say everything you've said
0: i appreciate that and i really appreciate that you read it that's laboring in silence for a long time i had no idea
1: i read every single word from cover to cover literally the acknowledgments, the introduction everything every single word i really appreciate um, that there's so many underlines and (laughs) highlights i just can't even begin to tell you and you know, I, I, obviously I love these aspects of the book, the sociological and societal aspects of the book. I also love the, the humor. You talk about your capacious humor and, you know, I love the musical references, you know, Exile and Fireville, you know, <laughs> referencing Liz Fair and, you know, you, you bring in a lot of different aspects of culture and your own, you know, your life, this, 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 this life that you've lived for all these years. And, you know, we have to wrap up here, but what would you leave our, our listeners with who are healthcare professionals in terms of how they can look critically at their own cultures, the places in which they work, the people they work with, their colleagues, their patients, what would be like a piece of, like, what's a takeaway for people to really ponder in in through the lens of what you've been through and what
0: you've written about? Well, that's a great question. I mean, i i I, I struggle to uh, to kind of offer much more than my own experience, just because I also think that I'm, you know, and I go into the book a little bit, you know, like I'm. I don't know, I can't explain how I am, who I am, other than saying this is how I am, right? So my my comfort level in recognizing, on some level, the futility of hope, but the need for compassion and engagement, you know, and so mm-hmm. I think, you know, and um, oh, the, the the well-known book, oh, oh shit, I'm forgetting his name, Black Man in a White Coat. Um, he wrote about being you know um, being a black doctor in in his training program and seeing how a lot of the enga- established nurses were really dismissive of the predominantly black women who were coming into the clinic and you know so and he had to wrestle with i'm trying to learn from these people my gut says they're being racist but then the part of him that was earnest kind of got him in himself in trouble because he was misreading some of what he was seeing and so I think that there's this kind of an engaged cynicism that we can't we can't force people to change, and yet we have to keep trying. I mean, it is almost a Zen thing. Like, I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm going to tell someone, if you quit smoking, you will be better off, <laughs> right? No one is going to quit smoking because Jeremy says so, right? But when you have people coming into your ER, you know, like, can we help like a lot of people do want to actually make changes? But if you've seen 30 people in a row who just aren't going to be compliant on their meds and they aren't going to make health choices, you just look like, we're all wasting my time or your time. But they're not all individuals, right? They're they're you have to wreck, I mean, excuse me, they all are individuals. We can't let them become just types. And then when we start to understand, like I remember I asked one woman once you know have you done prenatal have you been to the hospital for prenatals and she was 27 and of 25 and had like six kids and she looked at me and was like you going to watch my kids do i have time to get these kids to a, you know i was like fair enough we had two kids and i could barely get a date night right so mm-hmm. you know appreciating that like the sim- like the simplicity of a a normal Expectation. Well, they should do this and that. It's like, well, if you don't understand what it's like to have to choose between rent and food, if you don't understand that, you're going to make really simplistic judgment judgments. And it's finding the place to say, what can we do right now to try to help you do better? And That's then knowing right. that they may they may not they may not listen and you can't take it personally. Right. And it's so it's that very like it's a very interesting kind of detachment that's still connected <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah and on page 50 you say the simple truth is that being kind is its own reward it gives me more energy to be nice to people to expose a sliver of my heart to them i feel happier with the world better connected even in the despairing futility of what we see so i think that you know that's such an encapsulation of your your immense kindness and how much heart and 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 brilliance and insight and courage you've brought to this book. So I just, I can't thank you enough. And I could talk to you for hours, but this is just so wonderful. And at the end of each show, I ask every guest four quick questions. Are you good for a lightning round? I'll try. Okay. I know you, you like to, you're, you're, you are admittedly verbose, but we'll try to keep these relatively <laughs> concise.
0: <laughs> I will so, work on it. Let's go. Okay.
1: <laughs> so the first question is how How do you define success personally or professionally? What would you say about this the uh, that concept of success?
0: That's a good one. I don't. I don't really have much investment in kind of professional success because I think we we judge the wrong things often.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, I think feeling that I've I've honored my own values and I've under, helped other people and understood my limitations and kind of grown.
1: Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Okay. The second question I usually ask my guests to name or describe someone who's inspired them in the course of their life, whether living dead, famous, not famous. You mentioned so many amazing people in your book. Who, who's one person who's just a standout in your life who is like one of those people who is really a like a talisman for you
0: i mean i i I, you're right i do give genuine and ample credit to lots of people but since she was just out here last week my my dear aunt who is my late mother's younger sister Mm -hmm. uh has been a kind of a north star for me just in who she is and how she is and uh you know she jokes that they almost she almost adopted my sister and I, when we were infants, kids, but she was also like 19 and a mess and that wouldn't have worked out well. But we've reconnected as adults and she's made all the difference.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned her quite a bit in your book
0: too. Yeah, I do.
1: Yeah. So I often, the third question, the penultimate question I ask is about a book or movie that's really had a major impact on the way a guest on the show thinks or lives their life or approaches their work. And you're such a literary person and I've read so much and you, you have so much behind you as a writer and teacher. So what I'll ask you instead is what's a book you would highly recommend to healthcare providers to read in order to learn some of the lessons that you've learned to, you know, something mind opening and heart opening that you think would be a, a good place for some people to go.
0: That's a great question. I mean, on one hand, I think you're at, you're setting me up to say, read my own book.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Trauma sponges.
0: <laughs> um I mean, you know, my my reading, the bibliography at the back of the book is absolutely genuine and it's endless because I, I give credit to so many writers. I think in the healthcare system, any of the people I mentioned today, you know, Thomas Fisher, Michelle Harper, Sunita Paris, uh Dr. Atul, Atul Gawande, um, um, uh, Frank Wheeler. Um, so many. So many. I mean, I... You know what i'd go wow well, crap I, <laughs> sorry, i'm sorry i'm gonna fail this question um all those people and then you know lawrence gonzalez whose deep survival book i think really helped me understand risk taking so less about our ems work but more about human behaviors let's mm-hmm. just go with that he he's a good okay. he's a good egg and he's he's down there near near you somewhere
1: too so in the end they need to buy the book and read everything in the bibliography. Yes, right? that
0: would be much better. It's a, it's a thorough bibliography with, with very solid recommendations.
1: Excellent, all right. Last question. If you were named king of the world tomorrow, Mr. Norton, what's one of the first things you would wanna to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that you have ultimate power as king, and this would just be your very, very first act?
0: Wow, that is a wild question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would probably try to take order the the fingerprints of man out of religion, so we can get to a spirituality that isn't in, isn't infused or poisoned by uh, human pettiness and desires. Which might which might go a long way towards starting a better sense of world peace.
1: Wow. All right. That would be a really amazing way to start as king. So, um, if that happens, that would be that would be fascinating to watch. So, Jeremy, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I've been looking forward to this for so long, and the book Trauma Sponges is incredible. I can't recommend people highly enough to get out and buy it and read it and have their schools and their hospitals and their libraries purchase a copy and people can go to jeremynorton.info to learn more about you and to to read about the book and thank you so so much for being here i just can't it's been such a privilege
0: oh keith it is it is it is so humbling and thrilling to have people actually look at this thing I did and and to have a conversation with someone like you who has such a depth of experience and knowledge and a, a range of people you've spoken with. I'm I'm absolutely humbled. I'm just honored and humbled and I really appreciate the time you spent today.
1: Thank you, Jer- thanks, Jeremy. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this awesome episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com. And remember, you can go to JeremyNorton.info to read all about Jeremy and order his book, please. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you need personalized, holistic career coaching to elevate your healthcare career, check out Nurse Keith Coaching at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And we are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote. One of my very, very favorites by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Jeremy Norton saying she from...
0: The Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you, of course, on the proverbial flip side.